It is a delight to sing Christmas carols together as God's people. I invite you to come back tonight. We'll have at least nine different carols than what we've sung this morning that we'll be singing tonight together as a family, incorporating scripture. And, and hopefully, my, my desire is that it impacts us. Rather than just having the joy of singing Christmas carols, there's uh, a certain, well, for some people, there's a certain joy. For some people, like, ah, oh, Christmas carols. But when we connect the dots of what God has really done for us, the humility it took, the sacrifice it took for Jesus to leave the throne of glory, to come to earth, not, not to be installed as king, but to come as a baby, to live a life among sinners, and then to be killed for those sinners when we connect those dots to Christmas, it has that much more meaning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are. That you are the holy God, the one who has never, ever sinned, never sinned with action or with thought or word or intent. And because you are holy, you cannot be in the presence of sin. You cannot stand sin. You cannot withstand sinners. And so by our very nature, the, the fact that we are born sinners and we live our lives sinning, some, some sin more than others to be sure, but it doesn't matter. Just one sin breaks that relationship with you and and, and requires a blood sacrifice, because we are the opposite of you, there was no hope for us to ever be with you. And so you made a way. You sent Jesus to live among us, to, while still being fully God, become fully man so that he could die on our behalf. To be that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice that paid for our sins and makes us right with you. Father, we thank you that the message of salvation is for us to believe. To believe who Jesus is and what he has done for us. To believe who we are, that we are sinners in need of a savior and to accept that free gift of salvation provided for us, free to us, but that cost the very life of our Savior. Father, we thank you for your genius, miraculous plan of salvation, a plan that we would have never invented ourselves. Left to our own devices, uh, mankind comes up with all sorts of ways that we must pay for our own sin, that we must somehow earn enough goodness to offset the badness, but your word tells us that that is not possible. Thank you for your way. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And because you saw fit to stoop down to send Jesus to be our Savior, we can have righteousness applied to us. We can have forgiveness given to us, and we can be your child. Father, thank you for 
this gift of salvation. We ask, Father, that as we go about this week, as we, are, uh, as we have various Christmas-related activities, uh, whether it's uh, school concerts or family get-togethers or whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember the true reason for Christmas. It was not so that we might have an example of giving, although it is an example of giving. It's not that we might have just a, uh, a fun and memorable kind of holiday to get together for families. Christmas happened because Easter needed to come. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was required for our salvation. Father, help us to remember all throughout this season that it is our sin that caused Jesus to come and to die for us. Father, we ask that you would put your hand of blessing upon us as we look into your word this morning, that you would uh, use your spirit to convict us of sin, to point out ways in our hearts that we are not living for you, that you would use your spirit to guide and direct us in the truth, the truth that comes from your word, and that we would indeed live for you. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul as he purposed to live for you, to know Jesus so well that it impacted who he was and it changed his life. Lord, I pray that your son would change our lives continually, bit by bit, day by day, until we see him face to face. Father, thank you for the time that we have here together in your word. We ask that you would use it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our series is the mind of Christ, that we would think and thus act like Christ. Paul sets for us the example of Jesus himself, the one who humbled himself, who emptied himself, as we looked at in chapter 2, that great kenosis passage where he left the throne of glory, left his his, uh, side-by-side relationship with God the Father to come to earth to be with us. In fact, uh, don't we sing about that in some of our Christmas songs? Emmanuel, God with us. What a blessed truth. Uh, Paul then presents Timothy and Epaphras as examples of men who exemplified the mind of Christ as well. And now in chapter 3, Paul shares his own testimony of all that he has forsaken because Christ is infinitely more valuable. And what we see as, as Paul's goal is that he would grow and be more like Christ and that we would adopt that same goal. Our theme verse, our theme passage is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Would you say it along with me? Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our title this morning is Becoming Like Christ. Uh, Leave those verses up for just a second. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. 
how far will we obey our Lord and Savior? It's not in our nature to do it, is it? But Jesus was obedient even to the point of actually dying for our sins. Our passage this morning is Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Let me read that for us as we begin. Actually, I'm going to read verse 7 for us as well. It won't be on the screen, but you can follow along. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Recently, we looked at verses four through eight. Last time we were together, uh, we looked at verses eight and nine. Today, we're adding verse 10 to it. Lord willing, next week, we will look at verse 11, so verses 8 through 11. We're keeping this chunk together, and the reason for adding these verses bit by bit is that we simply cannot do justice to each verse if we take the paragraph by itself, uh, and yet at the same time we can't isolate each verse and look at them uh, alone without also incorporating the rest of the paragraph. So rather than taking verse 8 and then moving on to verse 9, we're adding verse 9. Today we're adding verse 10 and so on. We're just simply building on where we've been. Uh, So our primary focus today will be verse 10, uh, but we're not going to leave verses 8 and 9 behind. Uh, In fact, if you recall from a couple weeks ago when we looked at verse 9, there's a lot in that verse to know. To know that our righteousness is not found in anything that we can do in obeying God or anything that we can do in doing something good. It only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 8 and 9, uh, Paul makes clear his joyful, willing, purposeful abandonment of any earthly gain that this world might afford so that he might instead be found in Christ. He's very happy to let go of all those benefits of life that he enjoyed and instead be found in Christ. I wonder if we were to ask ourselves and, and be honest with ourselves, what are we hanging on to rather than clinging tightly to Jesus Christ? Very probing question that is prompted from our passage. Because Paul says he's willing to give up everything. He has given up so much. And as we see in today's passage, he's even willing to, to die for Jesus Christ. What are we hanging on to? What status or achievement is keeping us from growing in Christ? What status or achievement is keeping me from growing in Christ? What honor or veneration do you want to be known for? Or is Jesus actually your everything? In verses 8, 
verses 4 through 8, culminating in verse 8, Paul expresses his disdain for everything, calling it garbage. He does that because it's a comparison to his desire for Jesus, verse 9, and to be found in him. And then he talks about what it takes to be found in him, having that righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. And and he continues it in verse 10. So that and be found in him is directly linked to what we're looking at today. So we we spent a significant amount of time a couple weeks ago going through this rich doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ alone. We are forgiven by faith in Jesus, not by works. We are made right by faith in Jesus, not by works. Now today in verse 10, Paul continues his thoughts expressed at the end of verse 8 into the start of verse 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Is that your purpose? That I may gain Christ and be found in him. This knowledge of Christ that Paul desires is not simply cold facts or information that he wants to know about Jesus. Instead, he wants a close personal relationship with Jesus that can only happen by knowing Jesus. You can know facts about Jesus without having a relationship with him. Paul's not satisfied with facts. He wants to have shared experience with Jesus. He wants to have that tight, close relationship with Jesus. Paul believed, and so also should we believe, that knowing Jesus is our greatest joy in life. That having God as our highest affection should be the goal of our lives. There are all sorts of things that compete for our affection. And and many of them, in and of themselves, are good things. The affection of family is a good thing. But our affection for Christ should be so much more. Our desire to, uh, to work hard, to do a good job in our vocation, is a good thing, but should not be greater than our desire to have this close relationship with Christ. Having God as our highest affection is not just a New Testament doctrine. Uh, We find it in the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Lord proclaimed to the prophet Jeremiah and through the prophet Jeremiah that the greatest achievement a person can have in this world is knowing God. It's not winning the World Cup. It's not winning an election and becoming a governor or a senator or a president. It's not being born into a family of wealth and status. 
the highest achievement that we can attain is knowing God. People don't boast about things that they're ashamed of. Right? Oh, I, was, I came in last at my race. I'm not going to go around bragging about that. I mean, some people might. But generally, people don't brag, don't boast about things that they're really bad at. And yet, the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah says, let those who boast, boast like this. Boast in knowing God. Jesus declared in his high priestly prayer that our highest calling is to know God, is to know him. This is John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus praying for his disciples, praying for his people, actually praying for his uh, people of all generations. He's in, in essence praying for us as well that we would know God. And what does he call it? He says, this is eternal life, to know God. How much energy have you put into this greatest calling, this greatest pursuit, knowing God? How much energy are you putting into that? So let's look at verse 10. And answer this question. What knowledge does Paul connect with being found in Jesus? What are the things that Paul wants to know in order to more greatly know Jesus? First of all, we see to know Jesus is to know his person, not just his activity or description. Philippians 3, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. These are two things. So we're going to take them separately. I pointed out here that we see that it's separate so that uh, we understand that to know him is more than just knowing his power, specifically his resurrection. Paul desperately wants to really know Jesus. What does it take to know someone? We're talking about Jesus, but in general, what's it take to know someone? Well, it helps to know where they're from, doesn't it? That gives context to a lot of things. Well, where is Jesus from? He's from the Father in heaven. He has a very unique background. Hold that thought. We will talk more about that in a couple weeks as we have some messages on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But to know the person of Jesus is to know and understand his origin. To know the person of Jesus is to know his purpose. Why? Why would he come to earth? Was he just bored one day? No, of course not. Why would he step into this created world, this world that he created? Why would he do that? Why would he step into his created world and live among his created beings, his flawed, and honestly, as we'll see in a couple weeks, his hateful created beings? Why did he come? Well, a very good way to sum it up is John 10.10. 10. 
John 10, 10 says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, that verse is loaded with a lot of theological concepts to pull out. It's a good summary. He came that we might have life. How did he do that? By offering himself as the sinless sacrifice required to remove sin from us and place righteousness on us that we receive by faith. That's why he came. Without Jesus, we don't have life, not real life. Not an abundant life like God designed us for. Yes, certainly there are, there are billions of humans walking the face of the earth today who don't have Jesus. They have a physical life, but they don't have the whole life, the spiritual life that God designed us for. To know the person of Jesus is to know his origin, his purpose, to know his love. I've talked about this before, and I think I may have read Acts 9 in recent sermons, but it hasn't been too recent, so I'm going to read it again. Paul understood very sharply the love of Jesus. He had a, a great, a sharp focus uh, a great view of God's love that perhaps you and I might miss. Because remember who Paul was? Paul was Saul, the persecutor of the church. In Acts 9, verses 1 through 6, allow me to read for you. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, Paul, then known as Saul, was going around persecuting Christians. And what does Jesus, in that voice from the clouds, tell Paul? He says, why are you persecuting me? And yet, who loved Paul more than anyone? Jesus. Who called him from this way of destruction, this way of actually murdering people in the church to becoming a missionary who would go around and, and start churches. In Jesus' own words, Paul was persecuting Jesus, yet Jesus, in love, called Paul to be saved. This loving and kind and compassionate and ever-forgiving Savior is the one that Paul really, really wants to know. Because he knows, Paul knows, that he didn't deserve that kindness. He didn't deserve that forgiveness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't deserve it either. Now we look at Paul, and he was nasty. He was a nasty, nasty sinner, a terrible man. Well, of course he'd be forgiven much but you and I are forgiven no less for every sin that we commit 
is an affront to God, is a rebellion against God. And yet, our Savior loves us so much that he gave his life for us. Paul wants to know the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul wants to know his power, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. To know Jesus is to know his power. To deny the power of Jesus is to deny who Jesus is. And there are organizations who would call themselves churches but deny the godship of Jesus. They deny the deity of Jesus. They deny his eternal power. They are not churches. They may put that label on their door, but they are not God's body on earth. To know Jesus is to know his power. The power of the resurrection is an ultimate level power. You know, politicians have power over millions of people, but they can't do this thing. They can't raise the dead. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? Paul is making a connection that the power of the resurrection is connected to us. He says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. It's that same power that resurrected Jesus. Death is the greatest enemy of mankind. It is. And death is inescapable, isn't it? We shape our lives around preserving life, of fending off death as long as we can. The health food, health care, health and fitness industry is booming and growing. Why? Because death is our greatest enemy. Because we will do about anything to improve and extend our lives. But what we cannot do, despite all of our efforts, despite all of our resources, we cannot stop death. We may be able to postpone it, but we cannot stop death, and we most certainly cannot undo death. But God can. Not only can God raise our loved ones who have died, but he has promised that everyone who believes in Christ Jesus will be raised from the dead, and, and not just raised from the dead to come back to this life, but raised to eternal life with him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to have his life shaped by knowing Jesus and by keeping the resurrection first and foremost in his mind. Believer in Jesus, how does the reality of your resurrection impact your life. Now, resurrection implies that you're going to die. 
That's not news, right? You know that. But how does what's next? How does the resurrection impact your life? How should the resurrection impact your life? Knowing that God has eternity for you. Absolutely knowing that there's an eternity awaiting in a resurrected, perfect, immortal body. I mean, if it really sank into our consciousness that we have eternal life, I think we would live differently. I think we would continue to grow in how we live differently. We would count wealth differently. We would give of our money and possessions more freely. Why? Because, well, I'm going to die and I'm going to have eternity with God in a resurrected body in a perfect place where there will be no poverty, no sickness, and no death. We'd count wealth differently. We would sacrifice for Jesus more freely. We would take risks for his glory and for his purpose here on this earth. Romans 8, 10, and 11 say this. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What an incredible promise. That to know Jesus is to know the power of the resurrection because we will be resurrected. What an incredible promise that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Thirdly, that I may share in his sufferings. So know his person, know his power, know his pain. To know Jesus is to know suffering. We love the doctrine of the resurrection, don't we? At least one of us do, thank you. <laughs> we love that doctrine. We don't love this doctrine. To know Jesus is to know suffering. Being told that we must suffer, being told that God is going to bring suffering into our lives, that's not a popular thing to say. It's not a popular thing to hear. This is not acceptable to our Western way of thought. We do everything we can to prevent suffering. And when we can't prevent suffering, we try to hide it. It's not true in other cultures, but it certainly is in ours. We don't go out and wail and mourn in the street to let everyone know that we're suffering. Go to the Middle East, they do. No. We try to prevent it, we try to hide it. Paul here is embracing suffering, and not some easy level sort of suffering. He's straining to experience the suffering that Jesus suffered note the change of terminology here paul doesn't say that he wants to know or understand the suffering of jesus he says i want to share in the sufferings of jesus that's the word fellowship We've talked about that a few times word fellowship is to share a relationship through experience. 
as God's people, there are many ways that we are to fellowship with one another. Fellowship through joy, that's an easy one. We fellowship through the experience of worshiping God together, as we do right here and now. But we also fellowship through suffering. Paul's desire to have a deep relationship with Jesus will require suffering, to be wronged, to have your righteousness be called evil, to be abandoned by those who should be closest to you, all these ways and more. Jesus suffered and we will suffer. If you're going to know Jesus, you're going to experience how not only a believer can suffer, but how a believer can suffer well as the Father carries you through those times. The question is not if I should suffer, but how will I behave when I suffer? How do we get ready for that? You know, in our cars we have seat belts and airbags so that we're prepared should we be in an accident. In fact, uh, there are all sorts of ways that our cars are designed to protect us should we be in a wreck. But of course, you might not be in a wreck. Our insurance companies are happier when we're not in wrecks. But in this life, it is not like driving safely in a car where you might not be in a wreck. We will suffer. We will experience suffering. Pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus, knowing him more and more will help you when that suffering arises. Like already having a seatbelt on and an airbag charged and ready when you drive, having this intense level of relationship with Jesus will give you what you need to emerge faithful when suffering occurs. Because it will occur. To know Jesus in his suffering, to share in his suffering, will still hurt. It will still be a struggle. That's why we'll still call it suffering. But as your relationship to God deepens and sweetens, you will be able to suffer well. Paul wants to know his person, the person of Jesus, his power, his pain, finally his death. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To know Jesus, the way Paul's talking about it, to know Jesus is to be like Jesus. And here's the true goal Paul has in mind. Uh, not just to be like him, he says specifically to be like him in his death. In his death, Jesus displayed the ultimate level of obedience to God the Father that anyone could ever show. We find it difficult to obey in general, whether it's obeying God through his word or obeying uh, the, the laws of the land, we find it difficult to obey lots of simple things. But Jesus obeyed by dying. He surrendered himself to be separated from the Father for a time so that he might bear our sins, becoming detestable to the Father in those times. Remember, God the Father had to turn his back on God the Son as the Son bore our sins 
cross. So imagine this. The Father and the Son with the Spirit have shared the closest relationship anyone could experience, and they've done so for all of eternity past, which is still a concept I can't fathom. For all of eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit shared a perfect, harmonious, joyful relationship, a happy relationship. But for our sake, Jesus broke that relationship by bearing our sins. Paul wants to be obedient to God, to be united with Jesus in the death of Jesus. How far are you willing to go for Jesus? How much do you really want to know Jesus and be like him? Are you willing to obey God the Father, to obey the commands and principles in the Bible that are, that are directed to you as a believer in the church age, to obey even when it's costly or difficult or painful? Paul says, I want to know Jesus and be like him in his death. Knowing Jesus leads to becoming like Jesus. That should be our goal each and every day. To know him more so we might be like him more. So how is your relationship with God? Are you growing day in and day out? There really is no such thing as a spirit-filled relationship with God that is just flat, that just stays stagnant. That's neither growing nor shrinking. We are either increasing in our affection for God or we are decreasing. And, and, and the fact of life is we do the three steps forward, two steps back, right? We get closer to God, but then we sin. But then we get closer to God and we sin. But over time, has your affection for your God and Savior been growing? Are you closer to him today than you were last year? Five years ago. Paul basically wants to make sure he is always growing. And he sets that as an example for us, that we would know Christ as well. 2022 is winding down. How has your walk with Christ been this year? Finish strong. Okay, maybe you started a Bible plan and you set it aside and, and you're several months behind. Just pick up the last few weeks worth and start reading. Meditating on the Word of God. Spend time examining yourself in the mirror that is the Word of God. Don't just read the Word of God to, to have words pass through your mind, but examine yourself in light of the Word of God. How do your actions and motivations and thought processes reflect the mind of Christ? Are you growing? I'll tell you this. As you grow in Christ, this passion that Paul reveals will grow in you. And, and you may not be able today say, I just really want to know Christ more, but if you'll put the work into knowing Christ, that passion will grow and you will be able to say, like Paul, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, being made like him in his death.
Let's pray. Father, please help us to grow to be more like Jesus. Help us to set aside the desires and distractions of this world that would keep us from maturing the way we should. Father, help us to recognize sin in our lives and to, to call it out, to not try to soften what it is, but to recognize it as a direct rebellion against you and help us to purge it from our lives. Father, help us to pursue righteousness. Help us to pursue you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to wonder about what our God might be like. We don't have to be ignorant of what Jesus is like and how we should act because you revealed in your word what you want us to know. So Father, help us to love your word, to know your word, and to live your word so that we might be more like Jesus. We thank you for all the ways that you will work in us and through us as we determine to live for you in Jesus' name.